Professor Jurgen Smeyer, uh, great speaking with you. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, nice to be here. And before I say anything else, let me just say what my role is in all of this. Um, and to explain that I'm neither pro-Palestinian nor pro-Israeli. I mean, in a sense, I'm pro both of those those uh, constituencies because I'm pro-people. And I think you know, there's such a contested moment uh, where many of your listeners have strong feelings about the situation. Uh, and I understand that. And uh, it, it's perfectly reasonable to want to take sides and, and to identify culprits, and, and we need to do that. But also, it's very important to remember that the overwhelming majority of Israelis and the overwhelming majority of Palestinians just want to live normal lives. They just want to live at peace. And they've been caught in between these forces, which are really quite horrendous and, and leading to some of the most brutal forms of death and 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 uh, and and destruction but people endure and and i think ultimately there is a path towards a kind of enduring peace which is what we should all hope for in the long run now as far as what i do uh, I study conflict and conflict resolution situations around the world and write about that, and particularly those involving religion. And so many years ago, I was uh, spent time in Gaza and uh, in the West Bank uh, looking at Palestinian activist organizations. I also looked at Jewish activist organizations who were dedicated to getting rid of Palestinians and moving them out and often with the most brutal kind of way. So I was looking at, at both sides and in the process was able to interview leaders of the Hamas movement, including the founder of the movement, Sheikh Yassin, uh, and also the, the key uh, political uh, organizer of Hamas, Dr. Rantisi. Uh, and so I have some sense of of how Hamas views the world, uh, but also some sense of the rationality, rationale for extremists and violent acts. Uh, because at the time that I was interviewing them in, in Khan Yunus and Gaza, the, uh, the main issue then was suicide bombings. And at one point I felt relaxed enough in my conversation with Dr. Antisi to say, you know, these suicide bombing attacks are not going to really affect very much because Israel has the largest military in the Middle East. You know, that was obviously annoying and is terrifying, but it's not going to change the equation. You cannot win this war with these kinds of methods. And the Dr. Rattisi looked at me in a patronizing way <laughs> and said, well, maybe not in my lifetime and maybe not in my children's lifetime, and maybe not in my children's children's lifetime, but in my children's 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 lifetime, we might succeed because this is not our war, this is God's war. And then he added, besides he said, it's important for Israel and for our people to know that the war is still going on. So what appears to us to be a hideous and brutal act of violence that may appear to be pointless has a point and that it's meant to demonstrate the an ongoing war, some 
some great confrontation that otherwise we wouldn't see because we just have become used to the status quo, the things as they are, we feel that that's normal. The same is true of the attack on 9-11. And I did interview Al-Qaeda members who were associated with the earlier attack on 9-11 because uh, earlier attack on the World Trade Center, because obviously those in 9-11 were all killed and not available to be interviewed. But the ones involved in the earlier attack in 1993 were available. They were in prison. They were in uh, U.S. penitentiary. And I was able to talk with the key organizer uh, who, who said to me, Mr. Marcus, says, you people just don't understand what's going on. He says, there's a war going on. There's a battle in your news. You, you, you just don't see it. You just think that everything is normal and peaceful. You, you people need to be shaken awake. Somebody needs to grab you by the shoulders and shake you awake so you can see things as they really are. And I thought for a second, I said, well, is that why people bomb buildings? And he just leaned back and smiled. He said, well, now you know. Said, now you know. And so, of course, in a funny kind of way, uh, they made their point. Because even though there was a great fear that there was at 9-11 that there was going to be war, there was going to be another attack, there never was. It was never meant to be the beginning of a, well, there was not going to be an invasion. You know, suddenly there weren't going to be shiploads of Al-Qaeda activists landing on the beaches of, of New Jersey and then attacking the United States. No, that wasn't going to happen. It's a one-off thing. And it was a one-off thing to prove a point <laughs> that there was a war going on, at least in their minds, and that that the war should continue and 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 their own people should take up sides. I mean, the hope was that this the awakened Muslims around the world to attack the United States, which didn't happen. And I think the same is true with this hideous attack by Hamas on on a week ago Saturday. The this terrible event where. You know, hundreds of Hamas activists poured through the fences and through drone attacks and through an incredible array of, of military uh, hardware were able to inflict just the most mind-numbling and, and horrible kinds of atrocities on people. It was over-the-top kind of violence in some way like 9-11, you know, the kind of extremity of the, of the violence meant to be revulsion, to cause revulsion, meant to create fear, meant to be over-the-top violence that you could not escape from seeing. You know, and when Netanyahu showed pictures to American diplomats of of what the brutality looked like, uh, that was the point of Hamas. Okay, you now you see it. Now you... You see the brutality that in their minds, Palestinians had already experienced. And now and now you know that we're at war. And of course, war was exactly what Netanyahu proclaimed, just as Bush, right after 9-11, proclaimed that we're at war. It's a war on terror. And that I'm sure Al-Qaeda was pleased at the time, as I'm sure Hamas leaders were pleased to hear Netanyahu frame this attack as war. Yes, I'm sure in their minds they said, you got it. You got the point. We're at war. And of course, the, the war continues. I I don't know whether Hamas expected, I'm sure they expected, they expected some kind of invasion of, of, of attack on, on Gaza. How could they not? I mean, this is 
happened before when, when there were less severe uh, missile strikes from the Gaza side. So of course they expected this. But I think they also hoped that there would be, you know, Hezbollah would, would rise up, that, that uh, Palestinian refugees in Jordan would rise up, that people in the West Bank would rise up. I think they were hoping for a larger kind of uh, uh, resurgence of activity against Israel, which, which didn't happen. Um, but now they're in it. Now they're in the war that they, that they illustrated, that they demonstrated. And they wanted to prove to the world, and, and now they're in it, uh, with all the awful consequences that that war results in. What are your thoughts on Israel's government's uh, handling of the attacks and crisis, and any blind sights on the threats or allegations that Israel failed to react to intel from Egypt's warning of, of an attack, considering that Israel has some of the most advanced intelligence in the world? Well, there's a lot of, you know, armchair quarterbacking about what should have done and what Israel should have should have realized in the process. <clears throat> but I have to admit, from a sheer military point of view, the Hamas uh, attack was just very sophisticated. And one of the first things they did was to use drones to to shoot out the cameras and and all of the uh, sophisticated alarm system that the that the Israelis had relied upon as a kind of electronic defense along the Gaza-Israel border. So for some time, quite literally, uh, the command centers in Israel had no idea what was going on. I mean, Gaza, uh, Hamas had very effectively uh, just cut off all of the sensors, the sophisticated sensors that were set up and, and cameras to you know, to follow any kind of attack like this. Uh, so I, I'm not sure there's any way they could have easily imagined. I mean, now, of course, any uh, security system that's put in place uh, at present will have to be mindful of this just enormously crucial flaw. Uh, but it's also true that Israel's attention was occupied with other with other issues, with other things, and uh, of course, it's had huge demonstrations against the government over the attempt to try to have governmental control over the judiciary, and so the the you know the IDF was occupied with kind of domestic patrolling. I'm not blaming it for that. I think the simple fact is that uh, that the Israeli military were blindsided and. Uh, and now, of course, they're trying very hard to catch up, and that Netanyahu, as a leader, was hugely humiliated by uh, this uh, lack of, of uh, security and lack of knowledge of the possibility of the attack, and that he is trying to make up for it by being tough. And being tough means, you know, just invading Gaza in a very uh, strong, militarized way. What are your thoughts on Israel's treatment of the humanitarian angle, including avoiding civilian casualties and shutting off water and energy? And can you explain the terrain of Gaza as far as crowded living conditions? How are a million people evacuating and where are they headed? Well, I've been to Gaza a number of times, and I know the area relatively well. 
and it's been a couple of years since I've been there and things have just gotten worse in terms of crowded conditions. It's extremely congested strip of land. Um, the largest city, of course, is Gaza City at the at the northern end and, and less so at the southern end, but even the southern end with Khan Yunus and other, other uh, towns are, are heavily built up. So it, it's just not clear where people would go if, if uh, they expect, you know, 1.1 million people to move from Gaza City down to southern uh, Gaza. It just doesn't seem possible. Uh, there's just no place to put them. And it, it, right now, where would they possibly stay? I mean, you can see people, the pictures of people in their cars with mattresses loaded on the top because you have to have something to sleep on. Um, it, it, fortunately, the weather is relatively mild, so they can probably sleep out in the ocean, open. They, they really don't have any other alternative. Uh, but then there are basic things such as food and, and water which uh, and bathroom facilities, which are just in, in severe uh, in, in a severe absence of them. Uh, so it is a humanitarian crisis. There's no question about it. What are the dangers of the war escalating beyond Israel versus Hamas? I don't know. You know, you would think that if if Iran had a firmer hand in all of this, it would have moved much more quickly to be engaged, and that Hezbollah would have been moved would have moved more quickly to be engaged. That was kind of the sure indication to me that Iran was really not involved, at least in the planning. There's no question that they provided support to Hamas and have so over the years. Probably some of the missiles, although it's amazing how many of these. Missiles and armament were actually built in in Gaza by their own munitions factory, probably underground factories. There's a whole underground world under Gaza, which is another huge issue for the Israeli military as it moves in and tries to root them out. But you, you would have thought that Hezbollah being a much closer partner to Iran uh, and, and would have immediately moved in. I mean, the, the relationship between Iran and Hamas is somewhat... Den- Tenuous. I mean, for one thing, Hamas is Sunni Arab, not Shia, um, and usually Iran's uh, allegiances are with Shia groups such as Hezbollah, and the Hezbollah connection is really quite close. Uh, I was in Beirut a number of years ago, and I went to the part of Beirut to, uh, that was held dominantly by the Hezbollah, and I wanted to meet with Nasrullah, the, the leader, uh, who was uh, busy in his own military uh, encounter with Israel at the time. Uh, but when I went into this area, you could see flags uh, all over the area with picture of Nasrullah on one side, the leader of Hezbollah, and the picture of the Ayatollah Khomeini on the other side. Uh, so there's a, clearly a sense of the kind of friendship and alliance uh, that you don't see in Gaza uh, or any other Hamas-held territory. There's not this celebration of of the Ayatollah-Iran connection. It's simply that they, it's a kind of a marriage of, of convenience, uh, in part because Fatah, uh, the Palestinian main group within the Palestinian Authority and West Bank, uh, is to some extent supported by Saudi Arabia. And so when you get into the Saudi-Iranian conflict, then Iran wants to support uh, Hamas. And also it, it 
has a very strident attitude towards Israel, which it feels that Hamas shares. Um, by the way, you know, there's much talk about Hamas's determination to drive Israel into the sea. And I know that's part of the charter. And I know that's certainly uh, there's a very strong uh, anti-Israel sentiment that uh, motivates Hamas. But I was surprised in my own discussions with Hamas leaders how, how uh, quick they are, were to uh, defend Jews as a people uh, and to reiterate what most Muslims know, that Jews and Christians are people of the book and so favored in some way through Islamic tradition. Uh, and it, it, it and they wanted to assure me that it wasn't Jews as a people or Jews as Judaism as a religion that they opposed, but but the state of Israel and the occupation uh, that they have suffered in, at least in their perception, in the state of Israel. Uh, that's what they said. So I, I'm uh, I don't, I'm not trying to defend Hamas. I've- what is your advice for getting a somewhat civil discussion going between different groups at UCSB, as are people on both sides of strong feelings and perhaps animosity to the other, towards the other side? It'd be great if people would turn their attention, even in the midst of the current conflict, to the possibilities of alternatives. Uh, and I'll give you an example. In my own class at Claremont, which is a class that I taught for years at UCSB, a class in global conflict, uh, where we look at different case studies of conflict situations around the world. And then part of the part of the assignment of the class is for students to go in teams to get together and work on conflict situations and try to come up with resolutions. It is some kind of uh, alternative to the conflict that would at least take the better features of both sides in, in, into account in creating some kind of an alternative situation that both sides could fight for. And so we're doing that with my class at Claremont right now with Israel and Palestine, precisely because of the current situation. And I'm inviting on this next Monday, because I just teach on Mondays, uh, a a guy, Joseph Avasar, who's Israeli by background, but who is... uh, advocates something called the Israel-Palestine Confederation. So he's worked together with a number of Palestinians as well as Israeli uh, political thinkers to come up with an idea that was kind of like the European, you know, European Union that doesn't um, do away with either the Palestinian governments or the Israeli governments, but provides a third forum uh, to work at to resolve issues of conflict, to deal with with problem areas, including issues of terrorism and. And, and, and violence that can raise it out of the context of an Israel-Palestine direct conflict and into uh, a realm of civil discourse where you can deal with issues, even horrible issues, in, in a way that, that doesn't exacerbate the tensions between both sides. It's an interesting idea. Thank you, Professor Jurgensmeyer uh, with KCSB News. Uh, this is Robert Stark. Good talking with you.